Hello, and welcome to AgTech So What, brought to you by the Agthentic Group. I'm your host, Sarah Nolette. If you've ever struggled to get the facts straight around some of the controversial issues in food and agriculture, then you need to meet our next guest. Robert Prahlberg is a political scientist and an author, and his books turn some of the popular myths around food and farming policy completely on their head. I'm always concerned when I hear smart people describe modern farming as energy intensive, as resource intensive, as heavily polluting, as a source of obesity, as something that has torn the fabric of rural society, something that tortures animals. There's a lot of, there's evidence for some of those things, but there's a lot of evidence against most of those things. Rob is also an associate in the Sustainability Science Program at the Harvard Kennedy School. He was actually my professor when I took his Global Food Politics and Policy course back in grad school. And as you just heard, Rob rejects the claims that modern ag is to blame for many of today's environmental and social harms. Rather than a return to how we used to farm hundreds or thousands of years ago, he advocates for continued innovation and technological advancement. But he doesn't believe we have it all right today either. His newly released book, Resetting the Table, Straight Talk About the Food We Grow and Eat, is already getting good reviews, as well as ruffling a few feathers. In the book, Rob argues that food policy, rather than farm policy, should be the main focus of action and reform when it comes to the American food system. Fantastic. Thanks, Rob. Um, I am very much looking forward to, to talk to you. You have been probably more influential on my journey than you perhaps know, and I enjoyed pulling out a couple of your books from the bookshelf uh, this past week or two to dig back into them and, and check them out. So I'm really looking forward to this. But I wanted to start with a little bit on your background, sort of where did you grow up and how did you get involved in, in agriculture? Well, it came through my family. My father grew up on a small family farm in uh, Indiana and then went on to become an agricultural economist and then a, a senior government official working in the area of agriculture. And my father's brother managed the uh, university farms at Purdue University. So uh, it's kind of a family business. I was lucky. I had a chance when I was a teenager to spend some summers working on my uncle's farm in Indiana, the farm my dad grew up in. And I enjoyed it a great deal. It was, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't old enough to drive a car, but there I was driving a truck. <laughs> and you get to work with dangerous powered machinery and animals four times your size. It made me feel grown up. And I learned to admire the, the skill set that my uncle and my cousins had to manage all of the different complex operations of a diverse family farm. So later on, when I got a degree in political science and started teaching international relations, it didn't take me long to realize that I didn't really have much of a, an advantage pushing on that path. I had experiences and I had a heritage that was unique to people in political science and international relations, and I should make use of that, which is, which is what I've done. When you read Rob's books, it's easy to tell he's passionate about agriculture, but what makes them stand out to me is how well-researched they are. In chasing the evidence, though, he's found himself often in a gray area, landing in a middle, sometimes no-man's land, between heated sides of food and farm policy debates. The first of Rob's books that I read, back when I took his course, was called Food Politics, What Everyone Needs to Know. 
and it goes through commonly asked questions about everything from obesity to urban ag to biotech, biofuels, and climate change. I found, and still find, this book to be incredibly helpful as an ag 101. However, not everyone was happy with where Rob lands. I enjoy finding something new, and sometimes the evidence takes me in a controversial direction, but that's okay, because I'm not bidding for a position inside some government somewhere. The book did did get some pushback from advocacy groups who didn't like my take on agroecology in particular. I wasn't going to say that uh, we should return to hand gardening in agriculture. We shouldn't try to imitate nature. We shouldn't do away with powered machinery and fertilizers. I didn't want to go back to an agroecological approach. I was impressed with, with the gains from the, the Green Revolution in Asia and Latin America, more in Asia than in Latin America in the, in the 1970s and the 1980s. And I, I said that outright in the book, that there wasn't much evidence yet that agroecology was pulling farmers out of poverty anywhere or feeding anybody anywhere in a substantial way. And there's a, a huge push now for agroecology. And by not getting on that bandwagon, I, I became a target for criticism. The criticism was was largely couched in a complaint that there weren't any footnotes in the book. <laughs> but, <laughs> but there weren't any footnotes in the whole series of books. So uh, I didn't take that personally. And yeah. probably the pushback helped sell a few more books. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, that's um, it's, it's sort of free marketing, I suppose. Um, one of the things you talk about that I'm, I'm curious to uh, we'll have, have you explain if, if you're up for it is something that is not intuitive, I think, to most people around the role of farm subsidies on the price of food. And people think that sort of distorts the market. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, everybody intuitively thinks, oh, well, farm subsidies, that must make food cheap. But the purpose of farm subsidies is to increase the income of farmers. And often the best way to do that is to drive up the price of agricultural commodities. And that's done either by placing restrictions on imports, that's probably the most common approach, or by taking cropland out of production, or sometimes by mandating the use of agricultural commodities for non-food uses, like in the corn-based ethanol fuel standard program in the United States. Everyone who reads uh, Michael Pollan comes away assuming that farm subsidies have given America a plague of cheap corn. I think that was the, uh, the phrase that he uses. He doesn't, he somehow missed the fact that 40% of our corn acreage is diverted for the production of ethanol. So that doesn't enter the food supply. Or, or take, a look, take a look at sugar. Here's the most obesity inducing commodity of all, but by keeping cheap foreign sugar, including some foreign sugar from Australia, out of the US market, the price of sugar in the United States is 60 or 70% higher than the world market price. So farm subsidies make food artificially expensive, not artificially cheap. I'm curious your view. One of the things we've had on the podcast recently is pushback on, I would call it maybe a philosophy of subsidies around, you know, if farmers are running a business, then how much should we subsidize them and how much kind of government handouts are they getting? And especially in in an Australian context where subsidies work really differently, there's often a sort of, oh, those US guys are on easy street kind of conversation. What would your what would your response to that be? 
Well, looking at the experience of the last couple of years, I'd have to agree with a lot of Australians. <laughs> I mean, in the United States, uh, we have something called the Commodity Credit Corporation, the CCC. It's a government corporation that is entitled to borrow money from our treasury department with, with very little limitation. And so when President Trump starts a trade war with China that ends up hurting US hog producers and US soybean growers, he can, without an act of Congress, he can uh, ask his Secretary of Agriculture to pull billions and billions and billions of dollars out of the Commodity Credit Corporation and send it to farmers as checks. And I don't think it's responsible government. I don't think the trade war was responsible policy, but I certainly don't like this as a, as a precedent. I, I wish we had a little more discipline inside the US. It's good to have safety net systems, but we're now thinking about using the Commodity Credit Corporation to finance a new carbon bank to promote carbon soil sequestration. And I, I don't think the, the science is there yet to demonstrate that this is a, a project worthy of government subsidies. I, I think the government, I mean, I'm enough of an economist to believe that the role of the government is to produce public goods rather than private goods. And in agriculture, the, the most important of these, in my view, is, is research. I wish, I wish we spent a lot more on agricultural research. In addition to how much we spend on ag research, we also have to think about what it's spent on to maximize outcomes for farmers and industry. And this is a big debate, especially in Australia, for example, where ag research ranks really highly globally, but the system struggles with commercialization. The economics here are interesting. Some problems, whether in Australia or the U.S., just might not be big enough to attract the interest of governments or large corporations to solve. Rob gives an example of another approach, farmers working directly with startups. What sometimes happens is that the growers pool their resources and task a private company with um, coming up with a technical solution. We've seen this in the United States now with the automation of strawberry picking. In the Central Valley in California, there's been a labor shortage for the last four or five years and strawberry growers can't get pickers. And so they've, they've, had, to, they've had to leave their, their, their crops unpicked on occasion. And the market isn't big enough to be of interest to John Deere. The problem with robotics in, in the picking of fruits and vegetables is that each fruit has a different architecture and requires a different engineering solution. And if the market for peaches isn't very big, no one's going to invest in automating the peach harvest. So uh, strawberry growers in California put their own money together and they have a lot of money. <laughs> And they found a company in Florida that was willing to develop a robotic strawberry picking machine. It's called the Harvest Crew, C-R-O-O. And they hope it's going to be deployed next year sometime. It's fantastic because it, it picks uh, night and, and day. It's GPS precise. Each plant in the field has a different set of GPS coordinates. So the machine knows exactly where it is at all times. And it could solve a lot of labor problems for strawberry pickers in California, but it wasn't done by the federal government. It wasn't done by a big company. 
it was it was financed by the growers themselves. This California strawberry story is a good example of American culture taking responsibility and finding a way to solve problems on your own without the need for government intervention. But Rob argues that there can be a downside to America's focus on personal responsibility, especially when we look at the obesity epidemic and climate change. The real puzzle occurred to me when I looked at the United States versus the rich countries on the continent of Europe. It's two different worlds. Obesity prevalence in the United States is twice as high, twice as high as it is on the continent of Europe. And per capita CO2 emissions in the United States are twice as high as they were on the continent of Europe. So I said to myself, okay, what explains this? And of course, there are a lot of different reasons. But I ended up concentrating on what was distinct about America's political culture. And it's a political culture that has, it's, it's good for producing abundance. It's a political culture that, that values uh, liberty and freedom over security. It's a political culture that wants small government rather than big government. It wants personal responsibility rather than state responsibility. It's a political culture that doesn't like taxes and doesn't like regulations. And this is marvelous. If, if the goal is innovation and the creation of abundance, this is, this is the path to do it. But when it comes to limiting food consumption, you may need some, some soda taxes or some regulatory structures to tell companies they can't advertise junk food to children on Saturday morning television. And European countries can do that, and they've done it. You also need to be able to tax fossil fuels. European countries tax fossil fuels and gasoline. Even Canada taxes gasoline dramatically more than the United States. The United States doesn't tax food. We don't tax groceries. In the European Union, they put a value-added tax on groceries. In some countries, as high as 25%. We just don't do that. And as a result, we haven't been able to rein in our overconsumption of food or fuel. Our, our culture is, okay, we're going to innovate our way out of this problem. We're not going to moderate our way out. We're going to innovate our way out with bariatric surgeries or new treatments for type 2 diabetes or new uh, extra resilient coastal infrastructures to get ready for the next flooding storm. And on the obesity question, when people say, oh, well, people are putting the food in their mouths, it's personal responsibility. It's their fault if they're eating too much. And I think to myself, well, wait a minute, the obesity rates in the United States today are three times as high as they were in the, in the 1960s. Are we three times as irresponsible as we were in the 1960s? No, 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 no. It's not that at all. Rob tackles these issues and why U.S. culture and policy in particular can be problematic in his book, The United States of Excess. And in his most recent book, Resetting the Table, he digs into this again. I blame the obesity crisis in the United States primarily on the food environment that's been created by food manufacturing companies and retailers and national restaurant chains. I don't blame it on farmers or farm subsidies. Obesity doesn't come from the farm. These companies take the perfectly healthy commodities grown by farmers and add sugar, add fat add salt, hyper-process them so that uh, they go down so fast you don't even have to chew. They become virtually addictive. 
and it's almost impossible for a certain segment of the population to moderate their consumption. Here again, Rob unpacks the research to tackle some commonly referenced foodie myths. There was a time when everyone said that, well, low-income Americans are obese because they live in food deserts. They don't have access to healthy fruits and vegetables because there aren't enough supermarkets. Well, good researchers took a look at that and concluded that no, 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 that's not it at all. It's not the absence of supermarkets. It's the presence of too many unhealthy foods in fast food restaurants, corner bodegas, supermarkets have plenty of unhealthy foods. Now, one of the the most dangerous shopping venues for unhealthy foods is pharmacies. When I go to get a prescription, I have to walk through aisles packed with candy bars, uh, chips, soda, in order to get to the the pharmacy counter. Mm. So a, a CVS patron can now try to protect their health and ruin their health in a single visit. It's called a food swamp, and scholars have measured the importance of food swamps as opposed to food deserts. They find food deserts make almost no difference to the diet. If you put a supermarket into a neighborhood that didn't have one, eating patterns barely change at all. It's the presence of so many unhealthy foods that have been formulated to be addictive and virtually irresistible. One of the things you talk about kind of following on from that is the importance of a focus on food policy as much or more than on farm policy. What are some of the things that you are you think we should do there? Yeah, I think a good food policy in the United States would include excise taxes on sugar-sweetened beverages. It's something that's been done at the municipal level by the city of Philadelphia, the city of San Francisco, the city of Seattle. Uh, several other smaller cities. And in each case, it has brought down the consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages and increased the consumption of water. It's a a proven policy. It's worked in Mexico as well. European countries do it. At the federal level in the United States, Congress has not yet been willing to to look at that. I would also, on sugar-sweetened beverages, I would take sugar-sweetened beverages out of our food assistance program it's an entitlement in the SNAP program to buy any food you want, including candy and and soda. Uh, I wouldn't reduce the size of the benefit one bit, but I would not make sugar-sweetened beverages eligible for for purchase in our our SNAP program. I would also place restrictions on advertising of unhealthy foods to, to children. Some European countries don't allow the advertising of anything to children, or any foods at least. I would I would start down that path as well. And I would start with voluntary, but try to move toward mandatory requirements that food manufacturing companies put nutrition guidance symbols on the front of the package, symbols that could be understood at a glance instead of the fine print uh, letters and numbers approach that we have now. European countries have done these things. The United States hasn't I think it's time that the United States catch up. What response do you expect from this book? Do you expect any pushback on some of those ideas? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> My friends in agriculture are going to read this advice and accuse me of having joined the food police. <laughs> uh, but, uh, well, maybe I have. But my friends outside of agriculture are going to 
accuse me of being an apologist for for modern industrial farming. And I'm always concerned when I hear smart people describe modern farming as energy intensive, as resource intensive, as heavily polluting, as a source of obesity, as something that has torn the fabric of rural society, something that tortures animals. There's a lot of, there's evidence for some of those things, but there's a lot of evidence against most of those things. And so, I mean, my book will show that as we've moved toward precision agriculture, as we've introduced applications of modern science, both in genetics and in engineering, and now in ICT and artificial intelligence and machine learning and all of the rest, we've gone digital and like other industries, we're much less resource intensive than we used to be, dramatically so. If you look at look at corn production in the United States, we're producing five times as much corn now as we did in 1940 on 20% less land. That's good for the environment. Look at chemical use. In American agriculture, since 1980, fertilizer use has remained essentially flat, while production has increased by almost 50%. It's the same for irrigation. If you look at pesticides in American agriculture since 1980, pesticide use has declined by 18% in real terms, even as production has increased by nearly half. In insecticides specifically, people don't realize insecticide use in American agriculture today is 80% below where it was in 1972. I mean, these are, uh, I think these are significant achievements and we, we can continue and we should. And it bothers me when people say we should go back to a more traditional style of farming and abandon these applications of modern science. I think these applications of science have been our salvation. You have to remember in the United States, traditional low yield farming had already become unsustainable in the 1930s when we expanded low yield cropping into the Southern Plains in Oklahoma and elsewhere. The result, it was a drought prone region. We had a drought, we had a dust bowl. We didn't finally stop expanding cropland area in the United States until we had hybrid seeds in, in the 1940s and 1950s. So I think people who wanna go back to traditional farming are fooling themselves. They're, they're mistaken. It won't work. We're producing three times as much now as we did in 1940. If we tried to produce that much more using the traditional methods of 1940, we'd have to cut down our remaining forests and plow up all of our fragile land, and, and it would destroy wildlife habitat galore, and pretty soon we'd have a real silent spring. But mm. explaining this to people who've, uh, who've never spent any time on a modern commercial farm is extremely difficult. It's not their fault. They believe what they hear. They believe, and, and they visit small organic farms in the countryside on the weekend, and it looks to them like an ideal place and way to, to produce food. They, they don't, I'm hoping my book will give them a, a wider view of things.
Yeah, it's really interesting. I guess some of the pushback I can imagine to what what you've just said is, well, it's still, you know, we still do have challenges in nitrogen leaching or in monocultures or, you know, in, in the soil degradation or in biodiversity loss or any number of things. But what would you say to some of the pushback? I, I agree it's not good enough. Um, but I wouldn't want to go back to the way it used to be because you can't produce as much food as we're producing now with the low yield methods of the past without doing even more environmental damage. So uh, I, I think larger investments in research are the pathway to reducing the environmental damage even more than we have. One other pathway is uh, to, and this is also a, a research investment, this one was private sector led, is to substitute plant-based imitation meats and cell cultured meats for meat from from living animals. I think uh, this is a very promising approach in my view. You bring down the greenhouse gas uh, signature of a pound of meat by more than 90% if you switch from a a regular beef hamburger to an impossible burger or a, a beyond burger. And we're only just getting started in this area. I mean, the, the fashion industry was able to reduce its use of real animal fur by developing synthetic furs. The shoe industry was able to reduce its use of real animal hide by uh, by developing synthetic leather products. Uh, So uh, the food industry is already developing non-dairy milk products that are pretty close to milk. They come from plants. They come from rice or almonds or coconuts. We have plant-based egg products now that are very good. And we're moving toward plant-based meat products as well. So that's another pathway of escape from not just from the environmental problems associated with livestock production, but the animal welfare problems as well. My new book has a chapter on animal welfare, and it's, it's an unsolved problem in American agriculture. I celebrate crop farming a lot more than I celebrate livestock production. Livestock production has made exactly the same kinds of environmental gains that crop farming has with much greater feed use efficiency and better genetics. Dairy production, for example, releases far fewer climate-threatening gases, methane and CO2 than than in the past. One atmospheric scientist at UC Davis has calculated that the climate burden of a single glass of milk today in the United States is two-thirds smaller than it was in, in 1950. But you have to worry about the excessive confinement of the animals, particularly in pork production and with egg-laying hens. And there, I think the livestock sector has a long way to go. But the path is visible ahead. I was in in Europe uh, when I was doing research for this book, and I visited a a hog farm in the Netherlands. And uh, they have much higher standards when it comes to the housing of pigs and It sounds expensive when you describe it, but it's entirely affordable. Housing costs, it turns out, are only 10% of production costs in pig farming in Europe. So if the housing costs go up a little bit, the pig farms can survive. Europe raises twice as many pigs as the United States. So we don't have to worry about our industry disappearing if we begin to, uh, to use some of their standards. The most curious one of all, but one that I respect a great deal, is a requirement that pigs have to be given toys. What, yeah, what do you think about that? A good requirement? 
absolutely. These these animals are far <laughs> more intelligent than dogs and cats. They're subject to uh, to boredom if they don't have stimulation. If they're poorly treated, you can see the stereotypic behaviors: chewing on the on the bars of the cage, and pacing back and forth. If they can if they can root around in something they're much happier. And uh, I give the European Union credit for uh, figuring that out and telling their farmers to go ahead and do it. It's so interesting. I mean, in, in some ways, really refreshing, Rob, to talk to you because some of these views like plant, you know, the advocacy for plant-based protein or, you know, animal welfare, but also with a pretty strong view on, you know, modern biotechnology and scaling up uh, existing forms of production. Like sometimes the people that advocate for those things don't sit in the same room or or speak nicely to each other, but you sort of advocate for both. What does that mean, you know, in terms of pushback or criticism you get? Like, are you are you off in the corner by yourself? Yeah, we're getting dangerously close to the truth here. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't preach to the choir because I don't have a choir. But I, I hope people can look at my work as a as a cafeteria line and 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 take what they find interesting and useful and leave, leave the rest behind. I do get frustrated back to plant-based imitation meats. The You would think that the leaders of the new food movement who are harshly critical of the livestock industry would have embraced this, uh, this innovation, but they haven't. They've criticized it harshly because these products are ultra-processed. They come from profit-making corporations and they're not traditional. The new food movement wants to wants to go back to something recognizable from the past. They want a small, local, diverse, chemical-free, organic, artisanal farms. Mm. That's what will make them happy. And so when they see a technology-based solution waiting to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 90% and solve animal welfare problems completely, they're too attached to to their, I think, antiquated values to see the opportunity. But to be clear, Rob isn't against small or organic farms either. I raise the argument that, well, if people want and are willing to pay for certain qualities, then isn't it just good business to give the consumer what they want? Oh, I agree with that completely. I believe in multi-agriculturalism. There are so many different kinds of farms that I... Uh, <laughs> that I'm happy with, including full-time commercial farms, but also retirement farms, part-time farms, hobby farms, and also local, small, diverse, organic farms. But the economist in me says we have to be realistic about how far that's going to scale up. In the United States today, organically grown products have been heavily promoted for two decades. Uh, they're very popular with consumers. Consumers are willing to pay a lot more for organic. And yet farmers don't like growing crops without nitrogen fertilizer. And so very few farmers have switched to organic. Uh, so only 1% of harvested cropland in the United States today is certified organic, only 1%. Only 2% of farm sales in the United States are sales of, of organic products. It's not going to scale up as long as you have what I think is a needlessly rigid restriction against any use at all of synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. I mean, it makes sense in many cases 
to reduce the use of nitrogen fertilizer and to reduce it dramatically. But to reduce it to zero is completely arbitrary. There's no scientific foundation for that. It turns out that people want more choice. They want more convenience. They want tropical products in the wintertime that you can't get locally. Our food system is becoming more global, not more local. In 1990, the United States imported 11% of its food. Now it's closer to 20%. So we're not becoming local, we're becoming more global. And I'm all for that. Without those imports, food availability in the marketplace would be much less supportive of a healthy, balanced diet. And that's it for another episode of AgTech So What? Rob Perlberg's latest book, Resetting the Table, Straight Talk About the Food We Grow and Eat, is available now from Amazon. Check out agtechsowhat.com for a link and more books of Rob's and other resources from this episode. Thanks, as always, for listening. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share it with your friends and colleagues. It helps others find the show. I'm Sarah Nolette. Catch you next time.